I pay homage to the Buddha, I pay homage to the Dhamma, I pay homage to the Sangha. Man, I'm hungry. Um, you don't need to know that, but I have people listening to a podcast at some point, and uh, I have a really good, you know, uh, device here that is probably going to catch some of the rumbles in my stomach. And it's important that people know that Godzilla did not attack L.A. Sabota just forgot his breakfast. Anyway, uh, I've been reading uh, a book lately called uh, Taking the Kids to Italy. And it's written by one of my favorite authors. A lot of people haven't heard about him, but you should totally check him out. His name is Roland Marullo. And he wrote a really good series that I like, the first one called Breakfast with Buddha. Who wouldn't like that? And uh, he decided to write a memoir, Taking the Kids to Italy, which is uh, an odd memoir for me when I think about it, because I've often thought of memoirs as the story of someone's life, you know, from the beginning up until that point, or maybe a good chunk of time in their lives. But he wrote a memoir about a particularly bad trip to Italy he took with his kids for about a month. That's his memoir. Just a really bad trip. And uh, it starts out with a really bad winter in Massachusetts where he lives. And he starts getting really stir crazy. You know, it's cold outside. He can't go golfing or really visit with his friends a lot. He feels really cooped up in his really big house. Poor him. And he's just tired of sitting around the fireplace, drinking hot cocoa and reading books. And he starts thinking about all of these trips in the past he's taken to Italy. Oh, how good the food was. How wonderful the wine was. Oh, the road trips we had, and it was amazing. And now he's got two young kids, and his friends have told him, you can't travel around like you used to with kids. And so some stubbornness gets in there too. He must prove them wrong. So between these dreams of Italy and how warm it must be, because they don't have winter, right? It's Italy. And between his friends telling him there's no way he can go on a trip with his kids, he goes out to prove them wrong. So he racks up a bunch of debt on his credit card, takes his wife, his kids, and his mother, and they go to stay in Italy. They find a friend who has a house. They don't know what the house looks like. Unfortunately, this happened before, you know, Airbnb, anything, anything like that. He couldn't look at this place. He just goes. And wouldn't you know it, the place is pretty much just as cold as the place he left. Maybe a little warmer, you know. And things just go wrong from there. And one of his kids gets the flu, and then he gets the flu, and all the food isn't good. And it's winter, so all the touristy places are closed. And it, you know, just, it's just misery upon misery. misery. It's a good read. You should read it. And I was reading this book, and I'm still reading this book, during a really bad heat wave that we're having in Southern California. So the irony is not lost on me that I'm reading a book about this guy who can't escape the cold, while here I am, unable to escape the heat. And I decided to take this book with me last weekend when my wife and I were traveling up to Reno, Nevada for a funeral. So not a, not a really happy time. Her grandmother passed away, and so the in-laws and my wife and I hopped into our car and drove up to Reno. And I told friends and family about this, and they were like, oh, it's, that's so sad, of course, but you know, at least you get to escape the heat wave. Like you get, a, you get out of Southern California, you get away from the heat. And why they thought that driving to Reno, Nevada in July would be escaping heat of any kind 
is lost on me entirely. Because, you know, they told me, and, and, and I knew better, but I started to hope just a little. Like, maybe they're right. Maybe I will get away from the heat. It's not Southern California with a heat wave. And so we left early Friday morning, and we're driving, and really optimistic. I'm looking at the outside temperature, and it's maybe in the 70s. Oh, good. This, this will be fine. No problem. And it's just, as we're driving, it's just creeping up. 80, 85, 100, 104, 108. I'm seeing the clouds. I'm seeing the humidity. We step out of the car. That was a mistake. <laughs> and people are saying, you get to escape the heat. There's no escape. There's no escape. Not for Roland Marullo going to Italy. They got winter too. He should have thought that out. Same thing with me going to Reno, Nevada in July. No one's escaping anything in Reno. Not in July. And there I was, suffering through the heat. No escape. And suffering through the whole funeral and the sadness of losing a loved one. And I hate to say it, but the funeral service was probably one of the best parts of the trip. Because I got to be in the church where they had the vents in the ground with the air conditioning. And I got to sit right next to one of them. So yeah, people are crying and they're sad and the loved ones passed away, but I'm not sweating. So all in all, pretty okay. It's not a bad day. But it really did make me think, uh, you know, reading this book and going through this experiences with the heat, hot and cold, discomfort in general, and we're always trying to escape. You know, as I was reading through Roland Marullo's book, I kept just having to, to shake my head. Like, couldn't he see? He just, he got so caught up in his craving and clinging, his desire and, his, and his, these fantasies he'd created about how things were going to be. And we talk about that a lot in Buddhism. We talk about how we do get caught up in these stories about how things are going to be, how things should have been. And we, we live our lives as if we have any control over what's happening. We actually have a very small amount of control when it comes to what happens on the outside. We can't change the temperature, and we can travel really far away, but there's no guarantee what the temperature will be there either. There's all these kinds of discomforts we can feel. And it, it even permeates to the smallest aspects of our lives. You know, it's not just on bigger scale, but even on just the smallest and we see this the moment we sit down to meditate. Because many of us will sit down to meditate, and about five minutes in, that knee starts to tweak a little. It's not feeling quite right. Oh, move my leg a little bit. Oh, now it's falling asleep. Let me, let me move it again. All right, my back's starting to ache. Let me sit a little higher. All right, now it's starting to ache in a different way. I'm going to go back down like this. And, and you find these little discomforts that we're constantly trying to escape. We're trying to, to change. Now, in Buddhism, there's no problem in having a preference. Uh, I definitely prefer to be cool. Uh, I'm not necessarily a big fan of the heat. I'm a big guy. I sweat for about six to seven months of the year, so I get really excited when I'm not sweating. It's a good feeling. So I like when it's cooler. But I've pretty much learned to abide the things I can't change. There have been times my wife has, has come home and the house is kind of warm, and she's like, you've just been sitting in it all day? Yeah, I'm okay. It's, it's not, a, not, a, not that bad. Their air conditioner is right there. Oh, so it is. Well, now we can turn it on. You're here, right? It doesn't bother me so much. It bothers me most in the evenings because there's something about human physiology where your core temperature has to go down by, I think, at least one degree before your brain starts secreting the sleep chemicals. 
And for me, I retain heat and I radiate it out like some really lame, uncomfortable superpower. So I can't sleep in the summer. I, the, the chemicals just don't happen. So for me, most nights I'm sitting in the living room where the air conditioner is with the air conditioner on, hoping that I will get sleepy. And it happens around one, two in the morning, most of the time. So in the past, I was definitely a night owl during the summers, just because I, I couldn't fall asleep. And even now, I'm, I'm night owl-ish. You know, before I'd, I'd wait until basically sunrise, I'm like, all right, I'm going to sleep now. These days, it's amazing. Sometimes I'll get to bed at 11. It's, uh, it's wonderful. I, I think that's just part of aging, though. Now, I'm, now I can actually sleep because what else am I going to do? Things are getting pretty boring. But I have at least gotten to the point where when I do meditate, those little twinges don't seem to bother me so much. I can actually sit still for a surprisingly long amount of time. A while ago, I, I was giving a, a talk at another center, and I didn't know that they decided to turn on the recorder at the very beginning when I was leading a, a half-hour meditation. And it wasn't a guided meditation. I wasn't going to say anything. So I, I struck the bell, we started meditating, and there I sat for half an hour. And this was being streamed live on Facebook, and some people actually watched that. It's just a half hour of me sitting. And about seven minutes into it, this guy says, Hey, I think there's something wrong with the stream. I think the screen froze. I found the comment later on. I said, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I really just do sit that still when I meditate. But that's pretty much it. You know, someone might hear that and go, wow, that's amazing. The stillness he's managed to, it's just habit at this point. I've been meditating for so long. It's real easy to just sit still and meditate. But it's also easy to forget that stillness when I'm not meditating. Because even just a, a few months before that, I was at a temple where we were doing a long retreat. And there weren't a lot of the comfy cushions like you see here. There were a lot flatter ones. And we were already done with the meditation, and I had been a good meditator, not really moving around. And now it was time to hear a Dhamma talk. And so a monk is up there talking, and everyone is, is sitting and listening. And I'm not even really paying attention to what my body is doing. I'm not a good meditator now, because now that I'm not meditating, no longer any mindfulness, no longer any focus. And so I'm not paying attention to the fact that this guy's talking, and I'm just moving like this and moving like this the whole time. I'm the only one doing this. So about maybe 15 minutes into his talk, he pauses and he says, are, are you okay? <laughs> and then I get embarrassed because the entire room of maybe 30, 40 people turn and look like, is he okay? Do you need more leg room? No, I'm fine. And then it occurred to me how much I had been fidgeting around. Now, to be fair, I was listening to a talk in a language I don't speak. So there wasn't much for me to do other than be kind of restless. But we all carry this restlessness with us. It's a part of the human experience. It can be really rewarding, though, to see what happens when we investigate that restlessness and see what happens when we don't give in to it, to see what happens when we can just really sit with those feelings. When I st first started practicing Vipassana, uh, I would try to sit in more traditional styles with not a whole lot of flexibility. So I'd have a lot of pain in my legs when I would meditate. And Sure enough, my, my, my lucky left foot would just go to sleep, just entirely knock out. And I wouldn't have any sensation from the tip of my toe, probably up to my hip sometimes. It would just knock out. And even though it was asleep, it would still somehow manage to be uncomfortable at the same time. 
And initially, I, I would adjust and adjust and adjust and adjust. And I'd realize that I'd gone a whole half hour just adjusting, which really doesn't feel a whole lot like meditating. Over time, I found that what you can do with that kind of discomfort is that you can watch it and be with it long enough to kind of learn a lesson from it, get whatever you're going to get from it, and then adjust a little bit. Some people want to be statues when they meditate. They want to just sit down and then not move, and two hours later they haven't moved. A fly has decided to take up residence on their forehead, and, and that's fine. Uh, it's a cool trick. I, I generally think that in terms of just daily meditation, it's enough to, to be able to sit with the discomfort, and then when it's appropriate to move, adjust just enough and then go back to it and sit that way for another while. And then if you feel the need to adjust 15 minutes later, maybe you do it again. And so that way you can at least stretch out those moments where you're just abiding with discomfort. Because you really can't escape it. It's not just the temperature. It's not, it's not even just physical sensation. There's also the discomfort of the mind. Thoughts we don't want to have. Things that we're running away from all the time. Like how much running and running and running can we possibly do before we realize that running is absolutely the problem, you know? The, the only way out, the only escape is through. We gotta be with what's happening. So for me, over that weekend, it meant sitting in the car through the heat, air conditioner's blasting, but then you have to step out and it's hot, and then you get back in the air conditioner and now it's cold and you're never happy, and then you're there with your in-laws, which are nice people, but they're talking a lot, and you wanted to listen to your podcast, and now you can't listen to your podcast. You spent two days downloading podcasts on your phone, specifically so you can listen to your favorite podcasts, and you don't listen to a single one because you're the chauffeur, and they want to talk in the back, right? No satisfaction to be found. You got to just be with it and, and allow things to be different than how you expected. The trip was definitely different than I expected. There were plenty dissatisfying points along the way. But then you sit with it, you allow it to be, and then things change. That's the other beautiful thing that we talk about in Buddhism. Besides all the, you know, the suffering and dissatisfaction, we also get to talk about impermanence, which some can view as bad, but there's also a lot of really good things about impermanence. It means that whatever it is that's, dis that's discomforting in the moment won't continue forever. So the trip did change. My wife and I had a nice trip on the way back, just the two of us, because some of the in-laws stayed and some went on different trips, had to be dropped off at the airport. But she and I got to take a little trip back down to, to Southern California on our own. And I got to listen to some of my podcasts. So everything was okay. And we got to stop where we wanted to stop and have lunch where we wanted to have lunch. Got to talk when we wanted to talk. She got to take a nap when she wanted to take a nap. We were happy. And we got back to Southern California, and wow, wasn't I lucky? The heat wave was over. No, it wasn't. It's still hot. We're still miserable. The fan's going. It's not strong enough. We're all sweating. I'm sweating. Nobody's happy. That's life. And then have a good day, everyone. You know, like. But really, though, we, we do acquire these, these tools in Buddhism to not change the world and our circumstances, but to change ourselves. At the very least, we're changing the relationship we have to discomfort, dissatisfaction, suffering. And we can view these things not as enemies, not as monsters, not as things to run away from, but 
as things that we can just abide until they, they pass away. I think about poor Roland Marullo and, and how he can laugh at it now, and he sees the humor in it now. In fact, the whole reason he even wrote the memoir was because he told the story to friends who laughed and said it was funny and told him he needed to write it, and so he did. And it really is entertaining, but it's also a great example of, of that kind of restlessness, that kind of desire to escape. And time and time again, he just thinks things will be different. So he leaves Massachusetts thinking that this small town he's going to go live in for a month is going to be different. Turns out the house he moves into is surrounded by a bunch of homeless mongrel dogs that just keep circling around and trying to get into the house. He can't figure out how to work the heater, so the, the, the house is just cold all the time. There's hard floors that his poor little girls keep falling on because they're slippery and they fall out of bed, and now they're just hitting you know really hard surfaces, and, and it just goes on. And so this home that they imagined they'd be living in for a month, they stay in for about four days or so before they decide to go somewhere else. So they have to send apologies to the friend they were renting the place from, apologies to the neighbors who were supposed to help caretake and everything, and then they decide that they're going to go south and further towards the Adriatic, further towards the Mediterranean, because, of course, it must be warmer there, right? Still chasing after the warmth, trying to run away from the cold. And so they hop in the car and they drive down, they get lost a bunch, ask for directions a bunch, get lost again try to find restaurants, all of them are closed, and then they make their way down, and surely, this must be it. This is where they'll find happiness. Everything's closed, there's no parking, things are still cold. It's winter in Italy, because it's winter pretty much everywhere else around there, and it's gonna be what it's gonna be. Everyone goes there in the spring and summer. That's the time to go to Italy. And here's this man who enjoys food, and he that's one of the reasons why he's my one of my favorite authors, by the way, is because he'll describe the places he stops at road trips, even in his fiction. I'm pretty sure at this point, now that I've read more of his memoir, most of his characters are just him. So in Breakfast with Buddha, let's say, the main character, Otto, is just pretty much Roland Marullo. It's, I'm pretty sure that's what's going on. And he'll stop at places along these road trips and write about the food. You know, the pasta was al dente, the sauce was this. And so here's this guy who loves food, and then he gets the flu, and then he can't eat. He's just throwing up everything. He's subsisting on maybe a little bit of water here and there. This was his big escape. He couldn't bother to be home in his nice house outside of Boston. It was too cold, right? He couldn't go golfing. And then so he tries to escape, run away, run away. And now he's worse off for it. He can't eat. He can't golf. Because when he does find the golf courses, they're not what he had hoped for. And he's just miserable and mad and grumpy and driving on the wrong side of the road now. The thing is, though, we, we, we all do this in, in some small way, in, in some larger way. We're always just looking for a way out. Why do we keep running? What happens when we stop running? What happens if you're a guy like me and you just sit and be sweaty for a while? Really, what's so bad? Have a glass of water, replenish, maybe have a Gatorade, I don't know. Got electrolytes, they'd say, you know. And then just deal with it. Deal with the discomfort. Deal with the dissatisfaction. You might find that it's actually not so bad. What would have happened, really, if you decided to stay home? 
and not try to spend money he didn't have? What happened if he just found the pleasure and maybe sitting around drinking some hot cocoa? It really doesn't seem so bad when you put it in perspective. And so for us in, in our lives, with the stories we tell ourselves, what might happen if we stop the story for a bit and really try to see what's actually happening? Are things so bad? Now, for some people, maybe things really are that bad. But when things get really, really bad, you're probably not sitting around contemplating anyway. You got other things to worry about. But for those of us who, who have the proper conditions in our life to investigate and, and meditate and really look at our lives, maybe we have just the right amount of discomfort that might lead to wisdom, might lead to understanding, and through our own suffering might lead to greater compassion for others and how they suffer. So these are the ways that we might wake up. We're often told in Buddhism that there are many different realms of existence with different types of pleasure and pain. But the good thing about being born a human is that for the most part, we have just the right amount of pleasure and pain accessible to us that we can awaken. Now, that isn't to say that for some people, things don't get extremely bad. And for some people, maybe they have it way too easy and they never really think about anything. Some sort of shallow existence where everything's covered in truffle oil, you know? But for the most of us, we, we, we live somewhere in the middle. We, we have this opportunity. And for those of us who, even further, have some type of, of thirst we're, we're trying to quench, we end up in places like this. Everyone else in Southern California is also having to deal with this heat and discomfort. But there are those of us here who are dealing with that, but then decided to deal with it here at a meditation center on a Sunday. As people who are curious about Buddhism and curious about meditation and what wisdom it might give us. So we should use it. We should use the opportunity. Really look at what's happening in the body and in the mind. And I've, I've tried to stress this before. I, you know, I, I think um, a couple talks ago, I was trying to talk about the, the six sense bases and how those can be used to investigate. Because the six sense bases, you know, they're the, the normal ones we know all of the senses, but then including the mind. In Buddhism, we talk about the mind as a sense door that interacts with various things. And we can investigate those. We can look at those. And when, when the temperature is just right, it's sort of like being in an, uh, an isolation tank. You know, when the, when the temperature matches your body and, and the surface and everything, you don't actually feel anything. The whole reason why those tanks work is because they cut everything off you don't see, you don't smell, and you're just sort of floating there, it's peaceful. There's no sensory input. To really gain any wisdom and understanding of what's happening in our bodies, we actually need to feel what's going on. It's actually okay when things are a little cooler, when things are a little warmer, when things are a little stiff and, and achy. That's, that's something for the, for the mind and body to interact with. That's something for us to investigate. Now, the talk I gave at the time may not have been so great. Um, I felt a bit, well, actually, how, how, how should I phrase this? I felt the most like a conspiracy theorist I've ever felt because in that talk, I decided to also talk about all of these other characteristics and qualities, you know, and I think there's 37 qualities we can talk about in Buddhism, which are really just other ways of talking about the Eightfold Path and, and other things like that. And I just went through the whole list, like I was prepping everyone for the test next week or something. 
And, uh, and I think that that maybe detracted from just the beauty of, of interacting with our own body and mind. Because we're not only after knowledge, we're after wisdom. And wisdom is something that we gain through experience. And if we're re really looking at self, like self-realization, let's say, self-knowledge, self-wisdom, we, we have to really turn inward and investigate these senses. What are we seeing? What are we tasting? What are we smelling? What are we hearing? What are we feeling? What are we thinking in every moment? The good moments, the bad moments, the neutral moments. Where is our mind in the present moment? Are we trying to escape it? Can we actually stop and then abide? So I've never been to, to Italy, but I do think that after reading that book, when I go, it might not be in winter, because now I know everything's going to be closed. Uh, also, because of the time we live in, I no longer have to really fumble in the dark the same way he did, because now there's things like Yelp and Google, because this was actually written a few years ago, so he really couldn't even look things online. He just had to, do, he had to just call ahead and then hope people were being honest and then find out. And, uh, and so that was a lot of fumbling. But even then, you know, maybe the same thing would still happen. I remember that just a, a few months ago, some, some friends and I had decided to stay in a cabin in Idlewild. And up until then, the, the weather had actually been really nice. You know, it had been sunny and clear, perfect hiking weather. So we felt really optimistic when we said, you know, in two months, we're just going to go there. We threw the dice and just, we'll just see what happens when we get there. Because when you plan something that many months in advance, you don't know what's going to happen. So this big hiking trip that we've been looking forward to turned out into a sit in the cabin while it rains trip. And we did go in, into the little town of Idlewild. We walked around the shops, and it was sprinkling and raining at some points. That was still nice. Seemed a little dangerous to go out on the hiking trails because of the rain. So we didn't. But then that ch changed our trip entirely. We had been looking forward to going out into the mountains and, and hiking. We liked to hike. And then there was the hot tub, which we decided to use anyway. Now, I don't know if any of you have been in the hot tub in the rain, but it feels a little redundant. Because you're in the water and you're wet, and then the parts that aren't in the water are also wet, and it's just raining down, but then because of the surface area of the water, it's also raining up, and you're just wet, and, uh, and then you're squinting, and it's, it's not as fun as you'd think, you know? And yet, we all still managed to have a good time. We, we managed to be flexible with what was going on. And this reminds me of something that I didn't actually learn in, in Buddhism. I learned in, in studying uh, Stoicism. Stoicism in, in Greek and Roman philosophy actually has quite a few parallels to Buddhism. And one of the things that they talk about is that a lot of our discomfort and dissatisfaction in the world really comes down to misaligning our will with the will of the universe. Now that might sound weird for a Buddhist, because then we're talking about the will of the universe, like what does that mean? But it could just simply mean that there's a certain way things are going. The stream is going a certain way, and we keep trying to swim upstream, and it's not working out so well. 
It could be sometimes that the appropriate response is just to turn with it a little bit. And then things seem to get a little easier. You can be carried along by the current. Now you're not working so hard. Your muscles can relax. You might even start having fun. And when you can really go with those things, you find that you do have fun. Turns out the rain was fun. The shops were fun. We got to go and, and have candy and eat at restaurants. And it was a very different trip than what we had in mind, but still a good trip. The same thing with Reno. I didn't get to escape any heat. And I didn't always get to do what I wanted. But, you know, that's how things go. And the, the last part of it turned out pretty okay, too. So, I hope that was, was interesting. I, I hope that it didn't get too repetitive. But sometimes repetition's necessary, you know. Um, that's, how, that's how things really, really stick for us, at least for me. I know that in my life I've had to learn the same lessons over and over again because clearly I wasn't listening the first time. And I like experience because apparently I also need to learn the hard way, too. And experience is the hard way. I mean, if, if we could just read the right book and hear the right talk and then everything just clicked and made sense forever, that'd be really great. But generally, that's not what happens. So I can talk about discomfort and I can talk about dissatisfaction and how we might relate to it. But the real payoff for anyone listening to this is then putting those things into action. So even during this talk, even right in this moment, where's your mind? You know, maybe it's here listening to me, maybe it's not. So maybe this could be an opportunity to not only be listening to my words, but checking in with your body. For me, that means I'm feeling my shirt starting to stick to my arms because, of course, I'm sweating, you know, and that's okay. But what else is going on? What else is going on? We really need to be fascinated with what's going on, interested, not just with the good stuff, but with the neutral and the negative stuff, too. We have to be interested even in that, because at the very least, we can learn something about ourselves in those moments. We can also find out who we really are. You spend about three or four days with in-laws, and you start really learning who you are. How do you respond to stuff, you know? And, uh, and how do you respond to people who have very different temperaments, very different personalities, who maybe say things a different way, communicate things a different way? How can you relate to them? How can you be kind to them? How can you be kind to yourself? All important things to think about. Uh, so I, th I think that I will will wrap it up here, uh, but we still have quite a bit of time. So if you do have questions, I'd, I'd love those. Comments about your own bad experiences on vacations would also be pretty funny too. So uh, we'll, we'll see what we, can, what we can get up to. But anyway, thank you so much for listening.